Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis. To the book of Acts. This has been incredibly fun for me, exciting. I'm passionate about the book of Acts. We're teaching the Bible verse by verse so that we will be students of the word. We don't want to be Christians that just don't know the Bible. We want to be students of the word. There will be some graphic stuff tonight because we are talking about being martyred for the faith and I'm going to read you some stuff from Tortured for Christ, but I will warn you before it gets graphic, okay? So if you have kids in the room, don't worry. I'll warn you before I read the graphic content tonight because I want you to see the reality of people that are being martyred for the faith. We're in New King James. And our recap is the disciples have been going out in book of Acts. They've been preaching the gospel. They've been casting out devils. They've been healing the sick and the church has been growing. This has not been a watered down Sunday morning, warm a chair type of church. This has been a miraculous church with power, with authority. They're trampling on serpents and scorpions. They're beating the devil up everywhere they go. And the religious people absolutely hate the move of God. The religious people are trying to stop them at every turn, every corner. And the, the disciples are getting locked up over and over and they're being commanded <clears throat> excuse me they're being commanded you cannot preach about Jesus and then the next verse says and they continue to preach about Jesus so Ananias and Sapphira they lied to the Holy Spirit they drop dead there's a fresh sense of the fear of the Lord miracles are happening all over the place and we are picking up in Acts chapter 6 verses 1 if you have your Bible New King James Acts chapter 6 verse 1 says now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables so in the midst of the most exciting time in history a problem surfaces in the new testament church and the problem was there was hellenist widows that were being overlooked in the food distribution they were distributing food remember they were praying for people they were doing deliverance they were feeding people they were actually helping the community and this wasn't good because they're trying to build a reputation of being these kind loving caring people that help the orphan help the widow help the poor and here you have these hellenist widows that are being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food um, these were women of special concern because a lot of them would come to Jerusalem after in their final years they would live near the temple and they would run out of resources and find themselves poor remember these people had no children to take care of them they had no husband to take care of them and so the church became the place that's gonna take care of the widow guys the Bible says true religion is taking after the orphan and the widow the Bible says don't just be about it in word but be about it in action it's like if you say you have faith the Bible says and you see a poor person and your faith doesn't cause you to get them food the Bible says what kind of faith is that and so many of us we have faith in word we say oh I'm a Christian Oh, I love God, but we don't help the poor. We don't help the widow. We don't help the orphan. We don't adopt. We don't do foster care. We don't help the homeless. And so we have to go from a place of just talking about it, preaching about it to actually demonstrating it. So there's this issue where they're not getting fed. And so now the 12, basically the 12 disciples are saying, look, we don't have time to serve tables. We don't have time to be out feeding the poor. We need to be in prayer and we need to be in the word of God. So we need to come up with a strategy. Friend, as preachers, as pastors, 
Our job is not to be out waiting tables and just feeding the poor all the time. Our job, biblically, according to the book of Acts chapter 6, verse 1, is to be in the Word and to be in prayer. He says we should not leave the Word of God to serve tables. It's not desirable. And so we're going to find people to do that. So in Acts chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. So you can't just pick random people to serve. These men have to be of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So that's a prerequisite whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually. This is the disciples. Listen to what it says. We will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And this saying pleased the whole multitude. So this is the bottom line. They said, look, we don't have time to go feed people. We don't have time to wait on tables. We need to give ourselves to prayer and the word. Listen, guys, if I'm not giving myself to prayer and the word, I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to give you. I have nothing to upload. I have nothing to live stream. If I'm not in the word of God and I'm not in prayer, I'm not in the secret place with God, studying, preparing, spending my time there. Some of you are like, well, you need to go out and preach on the corner and go feed the poor. Understand, I'm giving, devoting my life to, to the word and to prayer so that I can reach the masses with the gospel online. Now, if your calling is to go and preach on the street, praise the Lord. Go preach on the street. If your calling is to run homeless ministry, praise the Lord. Go feed the poor. But don't get mad at people when their calling's not your calling and your calling's not their calling. The hand doesn't say to the eye, we don't need you. The eye doesn't say to the foot, we don't need you. Be the part of the body that God has called you to be. The disciples decided we're going to find people to do the work for us. So they're basically saying, look, we got to be devoted to prayer and ministering the word. We can't be out worrying about feeding the poor. We could appoint people to those ministries. It's not the pastor's job to do everything. It's not the preacher's job to run everything and to do everything. We are called to be devoted to prayer and ministering the word. And if I don't have a prayer life, I have nothing to offer you guys. If I stop praying and reading and studying, I refuse to go live. I will not go live without praying, without studying, without reading, just because I know people will come or just because I get paid to do it or just because it's my job. No, I have to be devoted to prayer and the word. Acts chapter six, verse five. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. I love that. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Like, make sure you know that. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, um, Timon, Tim, I don't know how to say these names, Parmenas, Nic Nicholas, and Proselyte from Antioch. Come on, guys, why can't you just have some na normal names? How am I supposed to pronounce these? Can somebody help me out with these Bible names here? These, I'm so glad we don't have names like that any longer. So these are the men that were chosen to feed these people, to wait on these people. Now, I want you to notice Stephen, who's going to be the first martyr we'll talk about here later, and Philip who's the only named by name evangelist in scripture. So here you have Stephen, a powerful man of God, and you have Philip, a powerful man of God, that are deciding to start their ministries by waiting on tables and feeding the poor. So you guys have to realize, many of you want to serve and you want a microphone, but you don't want to serve. You got to learn how to hold a plunger before you hold a microphone. You got to learn how to vacuum, be willing to serve the church. Many of us, we want to blow up. We want to get big and become this famous preacher, but we're not willing to serve in the house of God. But understand that we have to have the attitude of serving. Philip's like, I'm, I'll serve. Stephen's like, I'm going to serve. These men are powerful men of God, but they're going to serve. They're going to minister to the widows before God promotes them. So listen, don't be lazy. Don't be one of those that's like, 
Pastor's like, hey, can you come early to stack chairs? And you're like, no, I don't want to come. But then he asks you to preach and you're ready to go. Like we have to be the ones that are willing to be the first ones there to stack chairs. The first ones there. You need the bathrooms of the church clean? No problem, pastor. I'm your guy. You need the toilet overflowed in the lobby? I'm your guy. You need someone there early to open the building to start early morning prayer? I'm your guy. You need someone there to greet at the door? You need someone out in the rain to hold umbrellas to walk people into the house of God? David said, I would rather, come on, who am I preaching to? David said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to party with the wicked. There's no better place to be than a servant in the house of God. And so these men have decided, come on, all the pastors in the chat, get excited here. These men all decided that they're going to start by serving. So these are the ones that they chose. Um, they're willing to serve. They're willing to lead the ministry. Some of you need to get a heart of a servant, the attitude of a servant so that God can promote you. If you humble yourself, God will exalt you. If you want to be a part of ministry, be mighty. Go find a man or a woman of God and say, I will be next to you. I'll do whatever you need. I want to learn from you. I want to help you and I'll do whatever. I'm not, I don't need a limelight. And then watch God as you humble yourself. The Bible says God will exalt you. Acts 6, 6 through 7, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, man, that's awesome. They actually prayed about choosing these men. They didn't just say, oh, you're good at uh, you know business strategies. You're good looking. We'll hire you. That's, that's how the church does it. That's not how they did it. They had prayed. They laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of priests were obedient to the faith. So now we see they take over, revival's breaking out, the disciples are multiplying, and priests are getting saved, and this is how often they appointed or anointed people, and they chose people, was by laying hands. Now, there's a verse in the Bible that says, don't hastily lay hands on people, and we always use that against laying hands, and we say, you shouldn't lay hands on people and pray for them right away, you know, you need to wait and see who you're letting lay hands. That's not what it's talking about, it's talking about appointing people. Don't lay hands right away, appointing people that aren't ready, because you need to make sure that if you're appointing people into leadership, they're people of good reputation, people of the Holy Spirit, and people of wisdom, as the book of Acts shows us. And then Acts chapter 6 verse 8, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. I want to read that again, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. If this happened today, we would say, oh, brother, it's not about Stephen. It's all about God. But I want you to see the language that scripture uses. Now, we all know it's all about God, but I want to break false humility off the church, and I want you to see the language it uses. Stephen, full of faith and power, did great mighty wonders and signs among the people. It didn't say, and God, through Stephen, but all glory to God. He did signs and wonders. It gives Stephen the credit for the fact that Stephen is full of faith. Stephen is full of power. And Stephen is the one doing great wonders and signs and miracles. Remember, Jesus didn't tell the disciples, go pray for demons to be cast out. Jesus said, go cast out devils. Why? Because I've given you the power. In fact, if you go read your Bible, Jesus didn't say, go pray for the sick. I'm not being blasphemous. I'm telling you what Jesus said. He said, go heal the sick. Why? Because I've given you the power and the authority to command the sick to be healed. So we have to break religion off of ourselves and the church of like, oh brother, it's God sovereign. He'll do it if he wants and he doesn't really need you and all that. God is sovereign and God can do whatever he wants. But the reality is God uses people to do signs and wonders. 
And this is the opportunity, come on, help me preach tonight, Holy Spirit, of every believer to partner with God to perform the supernatural. God is inviting you into a partnership. So stop sitting on your hands saying, oh God, if you want to do it, you're going to do it. When God is saying, I've given you the power, I've given you the anointing, I've given you the authority and the ability to go cast out devils, to go heal the sick, and to do great signs, miracles, and walk in the supernatural power of God. Now again, religion hates this verse because well, if God wants you, he'll do it. And of course God can do whatever he wants, but I want you to say yes tonight. I want you to say yes to God tonight. Say, God, use me. Friend, listen, you've let so many other people use you. When are you going to let God use you? You've let your boyfriend use you. You've let your girlfriend use you. You've let your boss use you. You've let a coworker use you. You've let the devil use you. I let the devil use me for years. I was partying and in a metal band and leading pretty much worship for Satan, thinking no big deal. And we go years and years letting everybody else use us. Everybody gets the best of us and God gets the rest of us. And God is saying, when are you going to let me use you? You've let everybody else around you use you. And guess what? They left you empty. They left you depressed. They left you anxious. They left you broken. But God says, I want to use you. I want to give you purpose. I want to give you joy. I want to give you peace. In 2022, Lord, use me and use my life. That needs to be your prayer. Lord, use me. I'm tired of being used by Netflix. I'm tired of being used by TikTok. TikTok is using you. YouTube is using you. You know, they say any product that's free, you are the, you are, that doesn't cost anything. You are the cost. You are the price. You're the price that you're paying. When you're on Instagram and it's free, you're spending your time. It's using your time. When you're on TikTok, scrolling your life away, it's using your time. When you're on Facebook and YouTube all day long, watching videos that are worthless, it's using your time. So stop letting social media use you, manipulate you, control you, and start letting the presence of God use you tonight. Tonight, if there's anything you get from this broadcast, it's Lord, use me in a miraculous way. I'm tired of letting everybody else use me. I'm tired of letting everyone else do what they want with me. It's time for someone to say, God, use me. I'm ready. I'm willing. Now, I love how the Bible describes Stephen, full of faith and power and did great signs and wonders. Let me ask you this question. And I know it's strong. How would the Bible describe you? If the Bible could describe you, this is how it describes Stephen, full of faith and power, doing great signs and wonders. How would the Bible describe Isaiah Saldivar? How would the Bible describe Rallis? How would the Bible describe Andy? How would the Bible describe Sean Flynn? How would the Bible describe you if it looked at your life and the, the writer who's Luke was going to write about you because he's writing here about Stephen and he says, oh, Stephen, full of faith and power. Would it describe you as full of faith and power or full of apathy and complacency? Would it describe you as full of faith and power or full of, you know, stinginess and bitterness? Would it describe you as full of prayer and holiness or full of compromise and laziness? How would the Bible describe you? How do your friends describe you? What do they think about your Christianity? Are they, oh man, Jessica is a Christian, like a real powerful Christian who does miracles and wonders and she's full of wisdom and faith and power and love and kindness and joy and peace and patience and perseverance and endurance and passion for God and she's full of life and nothing gets her down and she's anchored and she's peaceful and her mind is at rest and she's never struggling with everything I'm sure how would the Bible describe us I want to be described as a man of God, not just on live stream behind a pulpit on a stage, but also in my private time. I want the Bible to describe me. You see, the word of God says that you are a written epistle read by all men. 
You are a book of the Bible. You're the 67th book. You are a part of the scripture. You're a written epistle read by all men. And so what are they reading? Are they reading rules and regulations? Does like, is your life look like Leviticus? Or does it look like the book of Acts where when they read you, they say, man, I see a person with signs. Man, I see a person with power. I see a person with passion. So how would the Bible describe you? Come on, ask yourself, how would the Bible describe me? I want to be described as a person of power, a person of prayer. Acts chapter 6, verses 9 through 14. Then there arose some of what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, um, disputing with Stephen. So here comes guys from the synagogue of the freedmen disputing with Stephen as he's doing signs and wonders and miracle. And they're not able, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. So here you have Peter getting arrested, John getting arrested, all the disciples are getting locked up. Now Stephen was doing signs and wonders, full of faith and power. Now these men, these synagogue of the freedmen are now going to go and they're going to seize Stephen for what he's preaching. And they're also going to set up false witnesses against him. It says, they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So they got to find people to lie. They're creating fake news to lie on Stephen because they can't dispute him. They basically started debating him and they lost the debate. Because the Bible says they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. So now their fear is saying, we can't stop him. We're, we can't, we don't know what to do about him. He is full of faith and power. So we're going to find people to lie on him. Friend, listen to me. When you find some people, come on, I'm preaching to myself, to make some fake news about you, take it as a compliment. They have to make fake stuff up because there's nothing for them to find. I had a guy write me one day. And on Instagram, he said, Isaiah, I'm going to expose you. He said, I talked to some um, schoolmates from when you were younger and you did stuff to them that no one knows about. First of all, he didn't know I was homeschooled. I was like, bro, I was homeschooled. I had no schoolmates. All right. I went to college at 16 and growing up, I had no schoolmates. So number one, you're wrong. He said, they're going to come out. He said, I'm going to expose you on my podcast. He was a total atheist. He was out there, right? He said, I'm going to expose you at uh, my podcast. And he said, here's your chance to tell me everything that happened so I don't expose you. I said, bro, you can't expose me. I've already exposed myself. I've already confessed all my sin. I've, everything's out in the open. I have zero secrets to hide. And my wife's like, are you afraid he's gonna try to expose you? I was like, there's nothing to expose. I've literally repented. I've, I've said everything I've ever done. I have nothing to hide. There's no skeletons in my closet. And so the only thing people can do is, <laughs> I know he tried it, is they have to lie on me. They have to make stuff up. People said, Oh, there was some girl that wrote an article about you. What do you think? I don't think anything. It's completely fake news. It's made up because if the devil can't argue and debate you and find something to point out about you, then he's going to have to make some fake news up. So the Bible says that they got people to make up fake news. They got people to come and say, say this and say that he's saying this and we have to make something up. And they did the same thing to Jesus. So take it as a compliment when the haters make articles. And God already showed me the bigger you get, the bigger your page gets, the more videos they're going to make about you, the more articles are going to get. And so I'll tell you what happens when I see a fake article about me. I'll tell you what happens when I see a fake video about me nothing happens. I don't lose. Okay. To all of you that are in here getting, trying to get ammo to make your video. Cause you're out of content and you need to use me for views. I don't lose an ounce of sleep over it. I live in your head rent free. Like you actually think about me. There's a guy on YouTube makes all these videos on me. I'm like, 
man, he thinks about me more than his own wife. I mean, this guy every day is making a video. I'm like, bro, you need to get a hobby. You need to try golf or fishing or go outside, go to the park with your kids. Like you're literally sitting around thinking about me that much. This is what they had to do with Steven. They're like, this guy, we can't catch him. We can't resist his wisdom, his power. And so we're going to go and try to make something up about him. So don't give in to fake news. Come on, you really believe what's going on in the news right now? That's the same thing they do to preachers. They make fake news. And so I don't even think twice about it. I don't lose sleep. I tell my wife it affects me this much. Zero, big fat zero. In fact, they're giving me free promotion because their people are coming to my page and they're like, oh, praise the Lord because uh, now I found out that you're real and now I got delivered or saved or whatever through your plat through your preaching. And it is what it is, but don't buy into fake news. They made fake news about him. And these were the official counts. This is what officially they're accusing Stephen of before the Jewish high court on two counts. Count one. Blasphemy against the temple and the law, Acts 6.13. The conviction of this is carried by the death penalty. Count number two, plotting destruction of Judaism by claiming Jesus is, would destroy the temple. And so they said, Jesus said he's going to destroy the temple. And so we're going to, we're going to stand him before trial. Now it's a lie. Christians were not plotting to destroy the temple. Jesus and his disciples had great respect for the temple and the law, but some Christian beliefs were twisted so that they can form an idea that would ultimately condemn Stephen. Christians in that day believe the following. They believe the temple is not the only place to meet God, but people can meet God anywhere, which the religious people absolutely hated. They believe that the law and the temple services are fulfilled in Christ. So we no longer have to go to the temple. We no longer have to fulfill all of this, the brazen altar and do all the stuff because Jesus, according to Matthew 5, 17, he fulfilled that. God writes his law in people's hearts and minds by the Holy Spirit. It's no longer written on tablets. It's now written on the hearts and the minds. Hebrews 8.10, Jeremiah 31.33. God's grace, this is what he was, they were believing. God's grace is not exclusively for Jews. It's also for Gentiles. Acts 2.39, Matthew 28.19, it's for everybody. So imagine these guys absolutely hated this because now they're saying, look, this is for everybody. It's not just about the temple. And their business is the temple. This is why religious people hate live streaming. Religious people hate online church because you're threatening us. You know, we have a church and now people aren't going to give and they're not going to show up to our buildings. Understand, I go to church. I believe in the church. I'm a part of the church. I travel and preach. I've given the last 11 years of my life to the church, traveling over 100,000 miles a year to preach in churches. But I want you to know you could meet God in your room just as much in a church. God is not bound to buildings and temples. Now, do not forsake the assembling together of the brethren. We should gather. We should come together. But understand, God is not in the building. God does not dwell in buildings. You don't have to go to a special place to encounter God. God dwells in people. So this is what they hated as he was preaching. Acts chapter 6, verse 15 through chapter 7, verse 2. We're going to read a lot here because this is a story that Stephen is going to say this is Stephen's defense now now I'm not going to preach every verse here I'm just going to read it I was going to skip over it but I thought it would just not be integral to skip over this whole portion so I'm going to read you what Stephen's response is to these Jews at the synagogue of the freedmen now he's standing on trial and this is what he says in Acts 6 15 this is going to go all the way to Acts chapter 7 verse 2 just bear with me he said and all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel then the high priest said, are these things so? And he said, brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham, and when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. 
So Jews, listen to this, associated the glowing face with the person close to God. So Stephen's on the trial of his life. Like if he loses this trial, he dies. And he's now experiencing the intimate presence of Jesus. His face is shining like an angel. And he's going to now uh, defend himself. But watch what he's going to do. He's going to charge them of the very crimes they accused him of. So he says, they're accusing him of blasphemy, accusing him of wanting to destroy the temple, accusing him of all these. He's going to now accuse them of what they're accusing him of. Watch what he says here. Um, we're going to go through this here, okay? This is going to be Acts chapter 7, verses 3 through 43. And said to them, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved into this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But when Abraham had no child, remember, he's talking about Abraham here. He promised to give it to him for a possession and the descendants after him. Verse six, but God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and they would bring them into a bondage and oppress them 400 years. Verse seven, and the nation to whom then they will be in bondage, I will judge, God said. And after they shall come out and serve me in this place, then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob, Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And verse nine, and the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt he's telling the whole story here but God was with him and delivered him out of all the troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh king of Egypt and he made him governor over Egypt and his house verse 11 now a famine and a great trouble came over the land of Egypt and Canaan and our fathers found no sustenance but when Jacob heard and that there was grain in Egypt he sent his fathers out first and the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh then Joseph sent out and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him 75 people the Bible says so Jacob verse 15 so Jacob went down to Egypt and he died and he he and our fathers then they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for some money from the sons of Hamor the father of Shechem it's a lot here just stay with me verse 17 but when the time of promise drew near which God has sworn to Abraham the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph this man dwelt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers making them expose their babies so that they might not live at this time Moses was born and this was well pleasing to God and he was brought up at his father's house for three months but when he was set out Pharaoh's daughter looked at him look, took him away and brought him to, to her as her own son and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words indeed we're almost done to say with me verse 23 now when he was 40 years old it came into his heart to visit his brother and the children of Israel and seeing one of them suffer wrong he defended them and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian for he supposed that his brother would have understood that God would deliver them by this hand that they did not understand and the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile saying man brethren why did you wrong one another but when he did his his neighbor wrong his neighbor pushed him away saying who made you ruler or judge over us do you want to kill me as you did the egyptian yesterday then at this saying moses fled and became a dweller in the land of midian where he had two sons okay we're almost done verse 30 and when 40 years had passed the angel of the lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of mount sinai now stephen's this is what stephen's preaching to the to the stand fighting for his life verse 31 when moses saw it he marveled at the sight and as he drew near to observe the voice of the lord came to him saying i'm the god of your fathers the god of abraham the god of isaac and the god of jacob and moses trembled and dare not look then the lord said to him take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground i've surely seen the oppression of my people in egypt i've heard their groanings have come to deliver them and now i'll send you to egypt 
Verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. Verse 37, this is what Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise you up for a prophet like me from your brother and him you shall hear. Verse 38, this is who he was... He was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers and the one who received the living oracles given to us, to whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected in our hearts. They turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods. And he talks about um, going back, making gods our own image. Verse 42, then God turned and gave them to the worship, the host of heaven is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You, you also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of the God of Remphin, images you made to worship, and I'll carry you away beyond Babylon. Okay. He preaches this entire message. Again, I was going to cut it out, but I don't want to cut it out because I feel it's not integral to skip that whole portion. He literally gives the lineage of these guys, like running circles around them, giving them a history lesson in the faith. And these are his main four points. And all that I just read, here's his main four points. God's presence and work are no longer confined to the geographical boundaries of Israel. God promised this land and this area, but no longer are we bound by this area. Now God is going to expand outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Number two, meeting God is not limited to a holy place or a house of worship. Number three, true faith doesn't need a holy place or visible structures to strive. It only needs the presence and the word of God. So we don't need these structures. So he's hammering religion here. Number four, he's, this is what he proved. Israel had a history of rejecting God by rejecting the representatives and idolizing man-made structures. So in Acts 7, through verse 50, it says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the patterns he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. Verse 48, however, the most high, this is important here. However, the most high does not dwell in te temples made with hands as the prophet says. Verse 49, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? So Stephen is here being accused of blasphemy, suggesting that the temple is not essential. But he explains, guys, God is not dwelling in temples made by hands. There's a new dwelling place in its people. And this is something that Jews could not understand. This is something that Jews would not receive and they would not admit to. So now they're going to kill Stephen because Stephen is letting them know it's not about religion. It's not about, I got to go to a place. I got to be in a building. I got to meet here and I got to meet there. And that's what I told the girl at the well. Like, it's not about worshiping there or there. God is looking for worshipers that would worship in spirit and in truth. So understand, he's saying, listen, it's not about the essential temple. There's a dwelling place called people. First Corinthians chapter three, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? So I'm the temple now. Think about this. God chooses now. I'm going to dwell inside people and not in temples. Ephesians 2.22. In whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. You are being built together, a dwelling place of God in the spirit. God is making you into a place where his spirit is going to dwell. You're the Holy Spirit's address. Type that in the chat. 
I'm the Holy Spirit's address. The Holy Spirit lives in me. He's not living in a building, in a place any longer. He's living in me. 1 Peter 2, 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. A spiritual house. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So you have to see this. You are a spiritual house. The Bible says, Jesus told us that when he talked about the demon coming out. Peter's saying, your spiritual house, your holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. So God is looking for sacrifices, but they're not natural. They're spiritual. Spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. God is no longer choosing to dwell in buildings. He dwells in us. Remember, Jesus cleaned the temple the first week of his ministry and the last week of his ministry. What was the cleaning of the temple prophetic? It was prophetic for Jesus driving out the thieves, the robbers, those that manipulate the gospel, just like Jesus drives out thieves and robbers out of us, the demons, right? He comes and drives them out of our temple. And just like Jesus came and drove the thieves out of the temple, he comes in our life and drives the demonic spirits out of our temple. This was not only a physical thing that happened or a prophetic picture in that time. It was also prophetic in the sense you're now the temple. So when Jesus cleans the temple, Jesus is cleaning us as well. So I believe tonight he's going to clean the temple. He's going to drive things out of us in Jesus name. This is Stephen's thing here. And then we're going to talk about some, some stuff about being martyred. Here's Stephen's thing, Acts 7, chapter 7, verses 51 through 54. This is what he says. You stiff-necked and am circumcised in your heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, to whom you now became the betrayers and the murderers. You've received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed their teeth at him. So Stephen ends his defense with an in-your-face indictment, not only about the past of Israel, but the arrogant Sanhedrin he's standing before that accused him of slandering God and Moses and the law in the temple. But it was them who slandered God, Moses, and the temple and destroyed it. Stephen pronounced them guilty on four counts, okay? It's all legal here. Stephen pronounced them guilty on four counts. Count one, persistence, resistance. I'm sorry, let me say it again. Persistent resistance against the Holy Spirit. That's Acts 7.51. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you, you're getting convicted. You need to hear this message because you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. What does that mean, brother? When the Holy Spirit says, go do this, you don't do it. When the Holy Spirit says, open your Bible, you don't open your Bible. When the Holy Spirit says, repent, we don't repent. When the Holy Spirit says, you shouldn't watch that, you shouldn't do that, we go and do it anyway. We resist the Holy Spirit. And this is count one. He's indicting these guys on like, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're stiff-necked. You're bitter. You're angry. Count two, persecution and martyrdom of the prophets. You don't listen to the people that God sends to preach. Regardless of how you like it, God has sent me to preach to you tonight. And you don't like it. You turn it off. You don't receive it. You make fun of it. It is what it is. You resist the prophets. And he says the same way your fathers resisted the prophets. Here was what Stephen was saying. I'm the prophet, I'm preaching to you right now, and you're going to kill me just like you killed them. So when God sends someone to speak to you, take it as if God was speaking. God speaks through people. He's not just going to manifest himself and just speak, but God speaks through people. So he's like, look, you resist it. Count three, betrayal and murder of the just one. That's obviously Jesus. You betrayed him and you murdered him. Count number four, Stephen's now indicting them on. 
Disobedience of the law they claim to defend. You say, you try to defend the law, you're breaking the very law you defended. So Acts 7, 55 through 56. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he's in trial right now. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen is now given a rare glimpse into the heavenly world and he sees Jesus standing. Notice here, at God's right hand. Now, usually Jesus is pictured as seat, seated. This is the only place in scripture where Jesus is seen standing at the right hand of God. And the reason why he's standing, he's standing to welcome a faithful witness that is about to lay his life down for the sake of the gospel. Stephen is going to be the very first martyr in the, in, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, the very first martyr. And here Jesus is standing, guaranteeing Stephen's salvation. Like, I'm, I'm standing, I'm supporting you, I'm with you, and I'm going to receive you, Stephen. Just as he stands, just, be, just as Stephen is standing for Christ, Christ is now standing for Stephen, letting Stephen know that you're not alone in this. I'm standing with you. Acts 7, 57, verses 60. Then they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears, and they ran with him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And when the Bible says they fell asleep, it means that he died. So here's, here's Stephen being stoned for his faith. And I look at our lives. And I'm, I'm, as I read this, guys, I, we, we're so disconnected from biblical Christianity because we so easily get angry with people, get bitter with people, have unforgiveness. Here Stephen is being stoned, which is one of the most painful ways to die. And he's saying, Lord, forgive them. Lord, receive my spirit. They don't know what they're doing, Lord. Now, stoning was capital punishment prescribed by the law of Moses for blasphemy. And according to legal rules, after a fair trial, which he just had or was on, with witnesses and careful deliberation, a death sentence required an overnight consideration. So many times the reason why the disciples are put in jail till the next day is they have to have an overnight consideration. You, they weren't allowed to just give someone the death sentence. It had to be an overnight thinking about. The convicted person was taken out to an 11 foot deep pit known as the rock of execution. And on their way to the pit, they were urged to confess their guilt with the promise of a share in the age to come. And if he did, the person was stripped bound hand and foot and they were pushed headfirst into the pit if they died from the fall the execution was over but if they got pushed into that deep 11 foot pit of rocks and they didn't die then the witnesses that were against him would go in there and throw heavy stones on the person until they died it was a horrific way to die but they did not do that in this case they gave him no proper procedures they went ahead and stoned him immediately and there was no right to do this because the Roman authorities had to give permission for them to stone him, but they were blinded by their rage. And here's the first martyr ever is being stoned for his faith. And a man named Saul was there and witnessed his execution. We're going to find out later what's going on with him. But Saul was actually guarding the clothes that the, of the executioners. 
He was guarding their clothes. The Bible says the executioners brought their clothes before Saul and put them at Saul's feet. And so now Stephen's the first Christian martyr. Why it's so important tonight. And there's been millions since that have been killed for the gospel. The fact that there's so many willing to die for the faith should be proof enough that the gospel's real. And Stephen being stoned, he mirrors what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus prayed in Luke 23, 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Acts 7, 59, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them in Luke 23, 34. Stephen prayed, Lord, do not charge him with the sin in Acts 7, 60. Some of us, listen, have a hard time forgiving someone who wronged us or talked bad about us, but here you have a guy being stoned and he has, he's willing to forgive. So tonight, my call to you is forgive. My call is forgive. Now, why was he killed? What was his ultimate reason of his death? He suggested that the whole, the temple was not as holy as they thought it was. He insisted that man didn't have to live by man-made institutions or traditions. He accused the religious leaders of resisting and rejecting God. He accused the law's leaders of failing to obey the law. And he placed Jesus on the same level as God. And they hated this. And so you guys have to realize that this persecution is still going on today. Right now, as I'm preaching in my comfortable studio, my comfortable office with a little fan on me, and I'm freely preaching on YouTube, freely preaching on Facebook, there's people being martyred right now for the faith. There's people being killed right now. Last week, we watched Tortured for Christ which with Richard Wormbrand, where he was tortured years in a prison as the founder of Voice of the Martyrs now is the largest Christian organization helping the persecuted church. And that video of Tortured for Christ got deleted off of YouTube because they said it was spam. They said it was deceptive practices and it's still on Facebook. But Tortured for Christ, if you haven't read Tortured for Christ, you need to read it. If you haven't watched the movie, you need to watch it. Hebrews 13, 3 says, remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember those also being mistreated as if you felt the pain in your own bodies. So you guys have to understand that this is not some far off, like once a year, we're going to talk about martyrs. This is a daily reality that we have to remember those in prison for the gospel. Right now, people in prison, some of you watching are in persecuted nations. Right now, people are being tortured. Now, I'm going to give you a warning because I'm going to read out of Tortured for Christ, a good amount of the first few pages, because I want you to see the reality. I know many of you are not going to go get the book and read it, but I'm going to warn you, this is graphic, okay? If you have kids in the room, what I'm going to read, I'm not going to show anything on screen because my video got taken down last time I did that, but I'm going to read some extremely graphic real stories that Richard Warmbread was a personal witness to of things that happened in the underground church and when he was in prison in Romania. Um, again, very graphic warning here. These are very graphic stories, but they're real. I'm going to do my best to get through these. I get extremely emotional every time I read these. I tried reading them on stream last time when we did the movie. I decided not to because I just have a hard time getting through it, but I feel the Holy Spirit tonight telling me you need to read this. People need to wake up and they need to understand there is a price to pay for the gospel. And I hope that these stories help you pray for our brothers and sisters that are being persecuted. Okay. So I'm going to read this. Bear with me, guys. It is graphic. It is intense. It will probably make your stomach turn as it does mine, but it's the reality of the price to be paid for the gospel. He says, this is Richard Warmbrand writing in this story. Okay. He said, I worked in both an official and underground manner until uh, February 29th, 1948. On that beautiful Sunday, on my way to church, I was kidnapped from the street by the secret police. I'd often wondered what it was, what was meant by man stealing, which was mentioned several times in the Bible. Communism has taught us many at that time were kidnapped, kidnapped like this. A van of the secret police stopped in front of me. Four men jumped out and pushed me into their vehicle. I was taken to a prison where I was kept secretly for over eight years. Listen to this. 
During that time, no one knew whether I was alive or dead. My wife was visited by secret police who posed as released fellow prisoners. They told her that they had attended my burial. She was heartbroken. So for eight years, he's in prison. His wife thinks he's dead. She was heartbroken. Thousands of believers from churches of all denominations were sent to prison at that time. Not only were clergymen put in jail, but also simple peasants, young boys, and girls who witnessed, to the, witnessed for their faith. The prisons were full, and in Romania, as in all communist countries, to be in prison means to be tortured, and the tortures were sometimes horrible. I prefer not to speak much about the things which I have passed. It's too painful when I do. I cannot sleep at night. In my book, God's Underground, I recount many details of our experiences with God in jail. Now, the book God's Underground is extremely graphic, more than I'm going to read you, and um, it's not. it wasn't able to be published massively because of how graphic it is. It wasn't my mainstream published. It had to be self-published, but if you're interested on Amazon, it's called God's Underground, and it's. I got through like the first chapter, and I couldn't read any longer because it's just too graphic, but he says this. He's going to describe again graphic some of the torment and the tortures that they went through so you get an idea of what these people went through. He said a pastor by the name of Florescu was tortured with red hot iron pokers and knives. He was beaten very badly. Then starving rats were driven into a cell through a large pipe. He could not sleep because he had to defend himself constantly. If he rested for one moment, the rats would attack him. He was forced to stand up for two weeks. Day and night, the communists wished to compel him to betray his brethren, but he resisted steadfastly. Eventually, uh, again, this is hard for me to read, guys. I apologize if I get emotional. Excuse me here. Eventually, they brought his 14-year-old son to the prison, and they began to whip the boy in front of his father, saying that they would continue to beat the boy until the pastor said what they wanted him to say. The poor man was going half mad. He bored as long as he could, and then he cried out to his son, Alexander, I must say what they want. I can't bear you being beat any longer. The son responded this way. This is the son's answer. Father, don't do me the injustice of having a traitor as a parent withstand. If they kill me, I will die with the words, Jesus and my fatherland. The communists in rage fell upon the child and beat the child to death in front of his father. With blood splattered all over the walls of the cell, the boy died praising God. Our dear brother Florescu was never the same after seeing this. Handcuffs with sharp nails on the insides were placed on our wrist. If we were totally still, they didn't cut us. But in bitterly cold cells, when we shook with cold, our wrists were torn by the nails. Christians were hung upside down on ropes and they were beaten so severely their bodies swung back and forth under the blows. Christians were also placed in ice box refrigerator cells, which were so cold that frost and ice covered the inside. I was thrown into one and I had a very little clothing on. The prison doctors, listen to how demented and demonic this is. The prison doctors would watch through an opening until they saw symptoms of freezing to death. Then they would signal the guards. They would rush in, take us out, make us warm. When we finally warmed up, they would immediately throw us back into the icebox cell to freeze again. Thawing us out, then freezing us. Within minutes of death, they would thaw us out again and do this over and over and over. So they're literally freezing them alive, unthawing them, freezing them over and over and over again, he said. Even today, there's times I can't bear to open a refrigerator. We Christians were sometimes forced to stand in wooden boxes, only slightly larger than we were, and this left no room to move. Dozens of sharp nails were driven into every side of the box with razor-sharp points sticking through the wood. While we stood perfectly still, it was all right, but we were forced to stand in these boxes for hours on end. When we became fatigued and swayed, the nails would pierce into our bodies. If we moved or we twitched a muscle, there were horrible nails that would be driven into us. What the communists have done to Christians surpasses any human understanding i've seen common communists whose face while torturing believers shown with joy they cried out while torturing us saying we are the devil we are the devil and this is what richard wormbrand says 
We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers of evil. And we saw these communists not from people, but from evil. It's a spiritual force driving them, a force of evil that can only be countered by a greater spiritual force, the spirit of God. I often ask the torturers, don't you have pity in your hearts? They usually answer with quotations from Lenin. You cannot make omelets without first cracking or breaking the shells of the eggs. And you cannot cut wood without chips flying. I said again, you know these quotations from Lenin, but there's a difference when you cut a piece of wood, it fills nothing. But you're dealing with human beings. Every beating produces pain. There are mothers who weep. It was in vain. They are materialists. For them, nothing besides matter exists, and to them, a person's like wood, like an eggshell. With this belief, they sink into unimaginable, unthinkable depths of cruelty. The cruelty of atheism is hard to believe. When a person has no faith in the reward of good or the punishment of evil, there's no reason to be human. There's no restraint from the depths of evil that is the, in the human beings. The communist torturers often said there is no God, no hereafter, no punishment for evil. We can do what we wish. I heard one torturer say, I thank God in whom I don't believe that I've lived this hour where I can express all the evil that's inside my heart. He expressed it in unbelievable brutality and torture inflicted upon these prisoners. I'm very sorry if a crocodile eats a man, but I can't reproach the crocodile. He's not a moral being. So no reproaches can be made to these communists. Communism has destroyed any moral sense in them. They boasted that they had no pity for us in their hearts. I learned from them. Oh, this is so good. Listen to what he says right here. And some, some of you should write this down. He said, I learned from them. As they allowed no place for Jesus in their hearts, I decided that I would not allow no place for Satan in mine. Let me say that again. I learned this from them. As they allowed no place for Jesus in their hearts, I decided I will allow no place for Satan, even the smallest in mine. He says, I've testified before the Internal Security Subcommittee of the U.S. Senate. There I described awful things such as Christians tied to crosses for four days and nights. The crosses were placed on floors and hundreds of prisoners were there to fulfill bodily necessities over the faces and bodies of the crucified Christians. Then the crosses were erected again and the communists jeered and mocked, look at your Christ, how beautiful he is, what fragrance he brings from heaven. So they would put them on crosses, lay them on the ground, and then hundreds of prisoners would use the restroom on top of them. And then they would put them up and say, what fragrance brings from heaven? He says, I described how after being drearily driven nearly insane with torturing, a priest was forced to consecrate human excrement. Again, this is graphic. A priest was forced to consecrate human excrement and urine and give holy communion to Christians with urine and feces. This happened in a Romanian prison in uh, Potesti. I asked the priest afterwards, why did he not prefer to die than to participate in this mockery? The priest responded, don't judge me, please. I've suffered more than Christ had to suffer. All the biblical descriptions of hell and the pains of Dante's Inferno are nothing in comparison to the tortures we went through in communist prison. And then he goes, this is only a small part of what happened on Sunday and many other Sundays in the prison of Potesti. Other things simply I cannot tell. My heart would fail if I tried to tell you them over and over again. They are too terrible and they are too obscene to put into writing. This is what your brothers and sisters in Christ go through, went through, and are going through now. If I were to continue to tell you all the horrors of communist tortures and all the self-sacrifices of Christians, I would never, ever finish. Not only were the tortures known, but the heroic deeds were, were known also. The heroic examples of those in prison greatly inspired the brethren who, who were still free. One of the really great heroes of the face, Pastor uh, Mylan Hamavachi, the prisoners were overcrowded and the guards did not know us by name. They called out those who had been sentenced to get uh, 25 lashes with a whip for having broken prison rules. Innumerable times, Pastor Hem, um, Hemavachi went to take beatings in the place of someone else. By this, he won the respect of prisoners, not only for himself, but also for Christ, whom he represented. 
One of the four workers in the underground church was a young girl. This is like, for me, the hardest one to read right here. Oh, all right. Give me one second here, guys. All right. Oh, it's hard to read this. One of the workers in the underground church was a young girl. The communist police discovered that she secretly spread gospels and taught children about Christ. They decided to arrest her, but to make the arrest as agonizing and painful as they could, they waited um, until they delayed her arrest a few weeks until the day she was going to be married. On her wedding day, the girl was dressed as a bride, the most wonderful, joyous day in a girl's life. Suddenly, the doors burst open and the secret police rushed in. When the bride saw the secret police, listen to this, guys. Oh, give me a second. This is really hard to read. One second, guys. All right. Let me find where I'm at. When the bride saw the secret police, <clears throat> she held out her arms. Excuse me. One second, guys. All right. Let me get this. I'm going to read this. Okay. When the bride saw the secret police, she held out her arms towards the handcuffed they thoroughly put the manacles on her wrist. She looked towards her beloved, then kissed the chains and said, I thank my heavenly bridegroom for this jewel he's presented me on my marriage day. I thank him that I'm worthy to suffer for him. <clears throat> One second, guys. She was dragged off with weeping Christians and a weeping bridegroom left behind. They knew what happens to young Christian girls in the hands of the communist guards. Her bridegroom, <clears throat> her bridegroom faithfully waited for her for five years after she was released. A destroyed, broken woman, she looked 30 years older and she said it was the least she can do for her Christ. Such a beautiful, it's the least that she can do for her Christ. Such beautiful Christians are in the underground church. All right, let me keep reading here. Westerners have probably heard about brainwashing in the Korean and v Vietnam wars. I passed through horrible brainwashing myself. It's the most horrible torture. We had to sit for 17 hours a day. Listen to this, guys. We had to sit for 17 hours a day for weeks, months, and years hearing communism is good. Communism is good. Communism is good. Christianity is stupid. Christianity is stupid. Christianity is stupid. Give up, give up, give up, give up. So 17 hours a day. This was playing, be, being played to them for weeks, months, and years, he says. Several Christians asked me, how could you resist brainwashing? There's only one method of resistance to brainwashing. It is heart washing. If the heart is cleansed by the love of Jesus Christ, and if the heart loves him, one can resist all tortures. What would a loving bride not do, not do for a loving bridegroom? What would a loving mother not do for her child? If you love Christ as Mary did, who had Christ as a baby in her arms, if you love Jesus as a bride loves her bridegroom, then you can resist such tortures. God will judge us not according to how much we endured, but how much we could love. The Christians who suffered for their faith in prisons could love. I'm a witness that they could love God and humanity. The tortures and brutality continued without interruption. When I lost consciousness or became two days to give the tortures any further hopes of confession, I'd be returned to my cell. There I would lie, unattended to and half dead, to regain as little strength as I could um, again. Many died during this stage, but somehow my strength always managed to return. In the ensuing years, in several different prisons, they broke four vertebrae in my back and broke many other of my bones. They carved into, into me over a dozen places in my body. They burned me and they cut 18 different holes in my body. 
When my family and I were ransomed out of Romanian and Romania and brought to Norway, doctors in Oslo, seeing all of this and scars in my lungs and tubercul from tuberculosis, declared that me being alive today is a pure miracle. According to the medical books, I should have I should have been dead for years. I know myself that it was a miracle. God is a God of miracles. I believe God performed this wonder so that you could hear my voice crying out on behalf of the underground church and persecuted countries. He allowed one to come out alive and cry, <coughs> excuse me. He allowed one to come out alive and cry the allowed message <coughs> of your suffering faithful brethren. It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners as it is in captive nations today. We're almost done reading this here. As it was understood that whoever was caught received a severe beating, a number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege, privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching and they were happy beating us. Everyone was happy. The following scene happened to me more times than I can remember. A brother was preaching to the other prisoners when the guards suddenly burst in. Surprising him halfway through a phrase, they hauled him down the corridor to the beating room. After the, an endless, a seemed to be endless beating, they would bring him back and throw his bloody and bruised body on the floor. Slowly, he would pick his battered body painfully and straightened. Uh, slowly, he would pick up his battered body painfully, straightened his clothing, and said, "So, brethren, where did I leave off when I was interrupted?" And he would continue to preach the gospel message. One great lesson arose from all the beatings, tortures, and butchery of the communists that the spirit is the master of the body. We felt the torture, but it often seemed as something distant and far removed from the spirit, which was lost in the glory of Christ and the presence with us. When we were given one slice of bread each week and a dirty soup every day, we decided to faithfully tithe. <clears throat> Give me one second, guys. When we were given one slice of bread a week, so one slice of bread a week and dirty soup every day, we decided that we would tithe even that. Every tenth, we took the slice of bread and we gave it to a weaker brethren as a tithe to the master. Again, guys, this is so far off from American Christianity. Okay, let's keep reading. We're almost done. When one Christian was sentenced to death, death, he was allowed to see his wife once before being executed. His last words to his wife were, you must know that I die loving those who kill me. They don't know that what they do, and my last request of you is to love them. Don't have bitterness. <coughs> don't have bitterness in your heart because they've killed your beloved. We will meet in heaven. These words impressed the officer of the secret police who attended the discussion between the two. He later told me the story in prison where he had been sent, he had been sent for becoming a Christian. So the officer got saved hearing that and was later sent and became a Christian, was sent to prison. Um, a total of 14 years in prison passed for me. So 14 years he was tortured. So a total of 14 years in prison passed for me. During all this time, I never saw a Bible or any other book. 14 years, guys. I'd forgotten how to write because of the starvation, drugging, and the torturers. I'd forgotten the Holy Scriptures, but on the day that I fulfilled 14 years, listen to this, okay? So he forgot Scripture. He was starving. He was tortured for 14 years. On the day I fulfilled the 14 years, out of oblivion came into my mind the verse, Genesis 29, 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed but a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. Very soon after this, I was rele released through a general amnesty given in our country, very much under the influence of American public opinion. I saw my wife again. She had waited faithfully, faithfully for me for 14 years. 
He said, we began our new life in poverty because those who are arrested have had everything taken from them. 14 years he was tortured for the gospel. Guys, this is what I'm talking about. This is so far off from what we preach, from what we listen to, from the sermons being preached on Sunday morning. I know the whole chat is pretty much saying they're crying, but this is the reality of people being tortured. And, and these stories I'm reading you are not even scratching the surface to what's happening right now in so many countries and so many Christians. And so for me as a preacher, I, I get emotional because I'm sitting in my studio and I'm freely preaching. I'm not paying for it. I'm not being persecuted. You know, sure, oh, someone made a video about me. Who cares? And these people are being tortured. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, remember them as if you yourself were in prison. He says, those that are being beat as if it was pain in your own body. He goes, remember them as if it was in pain in your own body. And so that book is Tortured for Christ. The other book that he references is God's Underground, which is extremely more graphic. I might try to go back and read it now. I tried reading it probably seven years ago, and I didn't get through the first two pages because it's extremely graphic, but you need to read Tortured for Christ. It's an incredible book, and we need to always remember these Christians. Stephen, the first martyr, I had a lot more I was going to cover with Simon the Sorcerer. I don't feel it's fitting for tonight to continue to go into that. We're, I've already been live for an hour and 15 minutes. I want to pray on that note of, of those martyred Christians. I want to pray for the underground church, the persecuted church, and then I'm going to pray for us, for God's healing power, God's delivering power, and that God would just empower us going into this new year. But let us just pray right now. Everybody, I want you to all engage in this prayer. Let's pray for... It just wouldn't be right if we didn't. Let's pray for the underground church right now. Father, we ask you, Lord, let us never forget the underground church. Let us never forget our persecuted brothers and sisters. Father, we ask you that you would be with them. We ask you, God, that you would bring them rest. We ask you that you would bring them peace. We ask you in the midst of their persecution, Lord, that you would be with them, that your power would be with them, that your anointing would be with them. God, help us to remember the underground church. Help us, God, to remember those that are being martyred, those that are being killed, even right now, persecuted father draw near to them your word says that you draw near to the broken hearted so father we ask you that your spirit would be near them that we would remember them in our prayers god that we'd remember them that we would help god even you know guys if you go to persecution.com this organization he started you could still give to it you could still sow into it, you could still help with it i pray father that we would remember them that we would play our part god lord and we would never take for granted the privilege that we have of preaching the gospel father i pray over every person in the chat right now that has a bible sitting on a shelf getting dusty that these men and women would do anything for i pray lord i'm pre i'm praying for myself as well guys lord let us not take the bible for granted let us not take our testimony for granted. Let us not take the ability to preach your word for granted. Father, let me not ever get on this live stream and take for granted the ability that I have to preach your gospel. Father, let me, Lord, preach like I've never preached God. Let me have a boldness. Give, I pray over everyone in the chat that you would give them a book of Acts, supernatural boldness to pre preach your gospel supernatural boldness to proclaim your word god in the midst of persecution in the midst of a devastating time god wherever they're at god i pray right now even during this whole thing going on in the world i pray lord give us a supernatural boldness to preach to our co-workers to our loved ones to our family god let us be bold the way these people are bold let us be bold the way the martyrs acts chapter one says you will re you will see power when the holy spirit comes upon you and you will be a martyr You'll be someone that's willing to die for this. Father, let me be one that's willing to die for this, God. We know that we're headed in these times where we're going to have to 
Give our lives for the faith. And Father, I pray for me. Everyone should be praying right now. I pray for me, Lord. Let me on that day, if I have to give my life for this, let me, Lord, have the boldness and the courage to lay my life down literally for the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Father, right now, bring a boldness over every person. Those of us that have filled, and I feel as well, guys, it's hard to cross that chicken line. It's hard to preach to our family or friends. I pray, Lord, this next year, you would break the spirit of fear off of us. We break off the spirit of fear in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. The spirit of fear has to go. God has not given us a timid spirit, but a spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind. So right now, in Jesus' name, we break the spirit of fear. Fear, you have no power. We will not be silent any longer. We will not be quiet any longer. I pray these stories would give you a boldness. Lord, make us bold for your name's sake. Make us bold for your name's sake. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do in us, God. Touch us, Lord, like never before. Empower us, God. We want to live out what they lived out in the book of Acts. We want the boldness that Stephen had. Father, we want to be known as those that are full of faith and wisdom and power. Give us that supernatural power to do the works you've called us to do. God, open up the doors. Make a way where there is no way. Father, I pray over every person in the chat, divine healing right now. I come against all sickness. I come against all disease. I know lots of my family sick right now. Lots of people I know right now have, have, uh, have COVID. I just pray right now, healing in Jesus' name over every person listening to this. If you need healing type one, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you'd bring healing in the body right now. We say cancer has to go. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.isaiahsaldivar.com for more content. And please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.